If you are living in neutral gear, your spiritual life will decline. Today on Bold Steps Weekend, making God a priority. If you have no sacred space, sacred time, then you will become an increasingly more and more shallow, less spiritual individual. Welcome to Bold Steps Weekend with Mark Job. Mark is the president of Moody Bible Institute and the senior pastor of New Life Community Church in Chicago. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Well, let's continue now in our study of Nehemiah and our Rebuild series. We're in chapter 10 today. Mark, we're going to learn more about how to make God a priority, specifically in three areas. That's right, Wayne. In this story, this account, the wall and the city have now been rebuilt. That was the big thing. Mm-hmm. But Nehemiah, he discovers that although the physical need has been restored, the spiritual need, the need of the soul, still needs a lot of work. And so Nehemiah challenges the people to repent and to repair three very critical areas of their souls. All right, so we'll be listening carefully, and we'll help you identify those three areas today as you listen to Mark in a message he's titled, Making God a Priority. If you'd like to revisit any of our past broadcasts, go to boldstepsweekend.org. That's boldstepsweekend.org. Now, rebuild your life, your city, your world. Here's Mark Joe with today's Bold Steps Weekend. For those of you that have not been part of this series on Nehemiah, the big theme of Nehemiah is rebuild your life, your city, your world. And let me in a paragraph try to catch you up on the story as we jump into the final chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was basically a son of an immigrant that came from rags to riches. It's a story of a guy whose parents came as slaves. He climbed up the ladder of success and ended up in the equivalent of the White House in Persia. Working for the most powerful person in the face of this earth, he had his life made, he had a great income, he had prestige, and God interrupted his life with a burden. And he finds himself now with a burden, a burden to go back to the town of his ancestors. So he leaves the posh cosmopolitan city of Susa and relocates 800 miles away to the burned down ghetto city of Jerusalem where he had never been before. The city has been in ruins for 141 years. So his first task is to mobilize the people to build the what? The wall. The wall is about a mile and a half long, 15 feet high, three and a half feet wide. It's a major monumental task. He mobilizes the people with a vision of working on their portion of the wall. They begin to work and something incredible happens. In 52 days, they accomplish what has not been able to be done in 141 years, the hand of God. They rebuild a wall, but the work is not done. The people rejoice, they celebrate, and then they turn inwardly to say, we've rebuilt the wall, but we have a desperate need to revive our soul. And so they begin to go back to Scripture and read Scripture. They have a massive gathering of over 40,000 people that gather in a plaza. They hear the Word, the Word of God conviction 
convicts him with such power and such might that Nehemiah says, you've gone astray in three areas. And I want you to turn around and repent in three areas and make these three areas right. You'll see this in chapter 10. The three areas are basically having to do with your family, your worship, and your finances. Now, I kind of wonder why did Nehemiah focus on these three areas, but I think the big theme to these three areas is that you need to make God a priority, a central point of your life. And when you move God out of the central point of your life, it'll be reflected in your family, your worship, and your finances. Now, if you read chapter 10, you'll see that uh, they were so serious about this that they wept, they cried, they signed a covenant, they had 82 priests that put their signatures on this, they vowed, they pledged that they would turn around and not go back to the ways of old in these three areas. Let me just summarize what those commitments were. In the area of family, what had been happening is they had been compromising the state of their family. The way they were compromising is that they were giving their sons and daughters in marriage to the nations around them, the, Anima, the Ammonites and the Moabites and the other ites that lived around them, and they were compromising because the people that they were marrying had a different faith. They didn't share the same values, they didn't share the same worship, they didn't say, share the same spirituality, so they were marrying people that believed differently, and they were raising children that had mixed alliances. They were confused about their worship and confused about God. They were polluting the worship of God as they mixed with paganism. And so Nehemiah was saying, you need to make sure if you marry, that you marry someone that shares the same spiritual values. Let me just pause for a second. Time out. How many singles do we have here? Just kind of wave at me real fast like this. How many singles do we have that have plans to be married one day? All right, here's a little free advice. Under no circumstances should you even consider marrying someone that is not on an equal par spiritually to where you are. Here's the thing, the Bible is super clear about this. In fact, he uses the imagery of a yoke. If you walk into my office upstairs, I brought a yoke back from uh, Apotes, which is a town in northern Spain. Don't even ask me how I got it here, major thing, because a big piece of wood like this. But, 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 but a yoke serves to put two oxen together. And what the Bible says is don't be unequally yoked with someone that doesn't share your same faith because what happens is that you will be attached to that person and you'll be pulling in different directions and when you're pulling in different directions, you'll never arrive at your desired destiny because you'll be going in circles, going around and marriage and any other partnership needs to be in the realm of someone that shares your spiritual values. And that needs to be a priority in your life. That you look for someone, you say, well, you know, pastor, I mean, this guy, I, I like him. 
you know. He's got the look I always wanted. He dresses nice, you know. He works at a nice job. That's good. I'm, I'm glad all the external things are in order. But listen, one day you'll wake up, one day you'll wake up 10 years into your marriage and you'll look at the guy beside you and you'll say, we are pulling in different directions because his heart is not the same as my heart. And you'll have difficulties about how to raise your children, ministry, tithing, priority, centrality, because you'll pull in one direction and he'll pull in the other direction. And I got some guys here saying, why do you want to marry her, Pastor? She's hot. <laughs> I'm glad she's hot, but so is hell. And, you know, there needs to be something a little deeper, guys, a little deeper than just her body. And the Bible is really uncompromising about this. Now, let me tell you, if you're married to someone that doesn't share your spiritual values, someone you're saying, yeah, yeah, okay, good, I can get rid of them? No, 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 no. No, I didn't say that. If you're already married, you keep them. Because the Bible talks about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, you know, if you're, if you're married to an unbeliever, someone that doesn't share your spiritual values, then you make it work. You just make it work. And uh, you, you, you pray that, that your faith, your spirituality will spill over to their life, not because you preach at them, not because you uh, put Pastor Mark's CDs under their, ta- under their pillow at night, and not because the alarm clock is set to moody radio and stuff. No, they're going to be influenced by the lifestyle and attitude that you possess. You see, your greatest Power, your greatest leverage is not your preaching abilities. Your greatest leverage is the quality of your lifestyle. And that's how you influence your mate. And so, um, but, but Nehemiah was real strong about that. Then the second thing that Nehemiah, so they made a commitment. We will not intermarry with people that don't share our values and our faith. Second thing he talked about was their worship. You can see it in chapter 10. Because basically chapter 10 all the way through 13 are rehashing the same three major commitments, uh, family, worship, and finances. And he talks to the people of Israel, they were compromising their worship. In fact, here's what they were letting happen in their life. They were letting the urgency of the secular take away the space of the sacred. They were letting the secular business endeavors in their life begin to take away their sacred space and worship. And they were doing it by violating what Scripture calls the Sabbath. Now, many of you are familiar with the Sabbath because it's one of the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, God talks about keeping the Sabbath as a sacred thing. Um, There's a lot of confusion about the Sabbath, and let me just clarify a bit Old Testament, New Testament, Sabbath. If you go back all the way to Genesis, the book of beginnings, you'll realize in the very first chapters of Genesis, the book of beginnings, that God created the heavens and the earth in how many days? Okay, six days. And then on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Wait a second. Some of you envision that God was like this on the seventh day. (sighs) Wow. I haven't done so much work in three trillion years. Man, was this a lot of work to create that? I am so tired, I need a break. Wrong. 
God didn't need a Red Bull on the seventh day because he was so exhausted. That's not the point. God is omnipotent and sovereign. God does not get tired. There is no shortage of divine energy. The reason that God rested was not to replenish his health, but the reason that God rested was to institute a divine rhythm in creation that we would emulate in our lives. It was a model for us. And so that divine rhythm of creation continues even to this day. That there needs to be space in our life, space in our schedule, where we just turn off the blackberries, we disconnect the computers, we, we uh, sh- put the, our, our cell phones on silent, and we disengage from our jobs, and what we do is we learn to enjoy our family, we learn to, t- to set space aside to worship God, to replenish our bodies without becoming workaholics. Now, we thought that technology would make work easier, but what it's done is it's created a generation of people that never disconnect. We're always on call. And we think that success adds up to how can I cram more work into less hours? And so we've created a generation of oftentimes neurotic, over-obsessed popping pills, over-caffeinated people because we don't know how to stop, relax, and worship and enjoy our families and relationships. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Just kind of nod at me. Now, some of you, that's not your problem. You're like over-relaxed. You need to go out, get a job, start working 40 hours a week. You know, you're just too relaxed, and you get out of that relaxed mode. So there's extremes in everything, Right? But what was happening on the Sabbath is that, that the people of Israel, they were not guarding the Sabbath. They were out there. Uh, they saw that the other people around them were doing business on the Sabbath, and they thought they had an advantage, so they didn't want to lose their business advantage, so they started doing service on the Sabbath. And what happened is that the sacred was being encroached upon. We live in a society where the secular is overtaking the sacred. Where, where, where we have less and less space for the sacred because secular is taking more and more of that. Yes, it's so important that we keep that spiritual place in our life protected and nourished and not let it become overrun by our culture. That's Mark Job, and you're listening to Bold Steps Weekend. If you're enjoying today's program and if you'd like to share it with a friend, go to boldstepsweekend.org. There, you or anyone can listen to past broadcasts. You can send us a message and also learn more about this month's unique bold action gift. We'll tell you more about this exciting resource and how to request your own copy at the end of today's message. So stick around for the whole program. Now, Pastor Mark Job has been teaching on the first two areas of our life that need to be restored. And the third is coming up now as we conclude today's Bold Steps Weekend. And more and more of our time is being encroached upon by the secular, and less and less in time is given to the sacred. And so one of the things that the people of Israel needed to repent of is you need to restore the priority of the sacred to your life. Because if you have no sacred space, sacred time, 
sacred moments that you devote to God and allow God to speak to you like we're doing this morning, gathering together, then you will become an increasingly more and more shallow, less spiritual individual. You understand that? The third commitment that Nehemiah challenged these people to make It was the family commitment, the worship commitment, and then thirdly, the financial commitment. And I said earlier, and let me reiterate, that oftentimes we've uh, separated the material from the spiritual and we put them in two different realms. But I believe that finances are as spiritual as prayer. Because our finances reflect our spirituality. The way you save, invest, give, and spend is a reflection of your values and your spirituality. Do you realize that Jesus talked more about finances, money, and possessions in the New Testament than he talked about heaven and and hell all put together? Do you realize that the Bible has thousands of verses about material, possessions, poverty, our, our perspective on wealth and riches? Why? Why? It's because our, the way we manage, spend, invest, save is a reflection of our values and our spiritual heart. Uh, the Bible says, the New Testament says, Jesus said, that wherever your heart is, there your treasure will follow as well. So never fall into the trap of separating the two. Our Finances are a reflection of our spirituality. And they're a symptom of how we're doing spiritually. And so you look at your checkbook, it's a great indicator of your spirituality. And what was happening to the people of Israel, they had got so egocentric, they had become so consumed in themselves that they were not giving anything, that they were not giving to the things of God, the people of God, they were not giving outside of themselves. And so Nehemiah reminds him of two words that you'll find often in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament, two words that I think uh, merit definition. One is the word tithe, and the second is the word first fruit. Let me start with first fruit. In an agrarian society, the first, uh, the, the, the first reaping of their... Uh, wheat, barley, uh, whatever their harvest was, that was called the first fruits. That was the first of what a farmer would bring in. And God, to sanctify the rest, basically, to set the priority of their giving in place, what God indicated was that you need to give of your first fruits to the things of God. You know why that was so important? Because in essence, what they were saying is, God, you are central to my life. I will not give you the leftovers. I will give you the first first portion, not whatever's left over. Are you tracking with me? You see, oftentimes we live our life and we live things on ourselves, and then we give God our leftover. God, if I have time for you, I'll give you time. God, if I have leftover finances, I'll give you finances. God says, I don't want anybody's leftovers. I want the central part. I want a priority. Give me priority so I can sanctify the rest of what you do. You are indicating importance and value with the way you give your time, with the way you give your your, your uh your finances, you indicate priority and value. Now, if you told your wife, honey, I love you. I really love you. You're like number one in my life. You'd say, great, can we go out for dinner? 
Sure. You know, I, I, absolutely. If the boss doesn't call me, if I don't have enough work, if my buddies don't call me for a game, if the neighbor beside me doesn't say, hey, you want to go out, if, uh, if my mother doesn't say, you want to come over for some mole, you know, what, you know, then I will definitely go out to you because, honey, you are number one. You'd say, she would quickly say, wait a second, you know, no, I'm not number one. Hey, that's number seven or eight on the list. I'm not a priority in your life. You're saying that I'm getting the leftovers after all that. I am not a priority in your life. And it's the same thing with God. God is saying the priority of the first fruits and the tithe is, is a New Testament word, but it's more of a mathematical word. The tithe means a tenth. It refers to 10% of what comes in. And so Nehemiah was establishing a pattern in giving that had been taught in the Old Testament, was affirmed in the New Testament, and it's called the first fruits and the tithe. You give first of what you have, and you give a tithe of what you have also to God. Now, every time I teach that principle, it's, it's like for some people that have never been exposed to it, it's like a, a, like a ton of bricks on their head. Like, are you kidding me, Pastor? And that's like, whoa really big. Well, you will discover if you have been part of this tithing, giving away a portion of your income for a certain amount of time, you will get to the point, like I and my wife are in our lives, where I I can't envision not giving that away. That you'll get into a rhythm of living where you say, you know what, I, I can't even imagine or fathom living without that because there's something good for my soul, for my life, for my mentality, for my spirituality when I don't eat everything up on myself and become self-centered, materialistic, greedy, but I give away a portion of what I have because it's good for me and it's good for my soul and it honors God. That's huge. So Nehemiah... He's gone for 10 to 12 years. He leaves Jerusalem in a spiritual state of revival. The people are, yeah, God, yeah, family, yeah, worship, yeah, finances. We're living for God. We're going all the way. And 10 years later, a decade has gone. Nehemiah goes back to Susa. He has no contact with the people. He leaves them in good condition. And here's what happens. Nehemiah chapter 13 is all about spiritual relapse. Here's what I've noticed about my life, what I read in scripture, and what I observe about human condition in general. Unless we re-engage in our commitments, our tendency is to fall to the lowest level of expectation in areas of our life. Because there has to be, our cycles is that our heart tends to grow cold and lukewarm unless we ignite it again. People that have good marriages are on a regular rhythmic way igniting their marriages, investing and infusing life and romance and value in it, getting away together, doing things together that cultivate their marriage. If you leave it in neutral, it will decline. Well, it goes back to Newton's laws of motion that Pastor Mark mentioned in an earlier broadcast. A body will remain at rest until it's acted upon by an external force. 
Applied, that means don't stay motionless when it comes to these spiritual ideas and principles, but ignite your heart and make God a priority in your family, your worship, and in your finances. That's great encouragement from the life and work of Nehemiah. Remember to hear any of this teaching series again, go to boldstepsweekend.org. And if you have a smartphone, another quick way to listen is by downloading the Moody Radio app. You know, sometimes life can get a little messy, and when challenges come our way or the situation seems to be out of hand, we might begin to question God's plan. Well, this is the main focus of our bold action gift, and here's Mark to tell us a bit more about the book titled, You Can Trust God to Write Your Story. If you pause a movie right in the middle, chances are it won't look like a happy ending. That's because with any good story, the drama and chaos are still building all the way until that well-deserved resolution finally arrives. According to the Bible, the same is true with God's eternal story. And to better understand how our plot twists are all part of God's plan, you'll want to read a book by Nancy and Robert Walgamuth called You Can Trust God to Write Your Story. In this convicting and yet comforting resource, you'll be encouraged to see your life story through a new lens while learning how to rest in God's providence and His sovereignty. If you've ever wondered, what is God doing with my life and where is He taking me, then this resource is one that you do not want to miss. It's our bold action gift, and you can request a copy today when you give a gift of any amount to support the ministry of Bold Steps. Thank you, Mark. To send your gift and request the book, You Can Trust God to Write Your Story, just give us a call at 866-535-5580 or go to boldstepsweekend.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to listen again as we continue our series, Rebuild Your Life, Your City, Your World. We'll see you next time on Bold Steps Weekend.